We'd like to thank all of you for listening to Psychedelics and taking this adventure with us. Arun and I are humbled by the support, reactions, interest, and inquiries that we have received. It's truly overwhelming. If you have enjoyed this series, please share it with your friends, leave a rating on your favorite podcast platform, and take a peek into our archives for a completely different way to look at science and engineering by talking to the people behind the discoveries and innovations that shape our field and beyond. As the second of three bonus installments, we would like to share a story of missed opportunities. Lindsay's fiance was a handsome, affable fella, a highly respected surgeon, and an entrepreneur with a passion for helping others. If he always seemed to be in pursuit of another success, it's because he was. He was always searching. At some point, it dawned on him that what he was after, perfection, acceptance, the respect of those in his life who were supposed to love him from his very beginning, not only wouldn't come, but would never be enough. Lindsay and Justin's story is not an easy one. Perhaps the hardest part is knowing that it was unnecessary. Mental health has been a taboo for too long. It has been understudied, underfunded, underestimated, but unfortunately, never well understood. The timing of the research of psychedelic medicines was too late to help Justin. Lindsay is here to tell you his story, their story, because what happened to Justin happened to everyone in his life. And I hope that it helps to open even one conversation or helps just one person to find the voice to reach out and ask for help. If we can inspire one person to pursue research or volunteer their time or resources to developing therapies, well, then we've helped Justin extend his passion for helping others. Could psychedelic medicines have helped Justin? We'll never know. But we're hopeful that psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy will have a chance to make a difference for someone else. Lindsay, thank you for all that you did for Justin and for telling your story. I don't know. What do I say? What do I talk? Like, how well, do I start with? Um, I think the the background story on Justin and and maybe how you guys met is a good start. Yeah. Um. So. I met Justin in December 2012. I was doing my undergrad internship at UCSD Thornton. Um, I was observing a an internal medicine physician and we got called down to the ER to see a couple of patients. This one patient in particular uh, was a Vietnam vet who had an agent orange exposure and I being a biochem major was just like absolutely fascinated with like this molecule and how it like can like why we decided to use that in war that's side question but um, all the things that this patient had to go through because of this exposure and um, so like heart lung um, transplants liver transplant. Um, we were fitting, he was being seen uh, for clots because of all the transplants and all the medications that he was on. So they had to implant a graft in his, um, one of his lower leg veins to, to stop clots from coming up uh, uh, through the rest of his body. So I was sitting there in the back of the, the room, the, um, just furiously taking notes, just like full nerd Lindsay, like, like, <laughs> oh my God, tell me all the things. I don't know any of these words. And so from behind me, there's like this just imposing presence. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't whatever it is, I don't even care. And he's like, hi, I'm Dr. Lemieux. And I was like, oh, I do not have time for you right now. <laughs> Like I could smell his intentions and I was like, I don't know. I got to go away. Um, and I was like, hi, Dr. Lemieux. I'm paying attention over here. And he's like, what are you doing? I was like, agent orange exposure. What do you want? Go away. <laughs> and um, like, so I, I basically like with as much tact as I usually have, which is not much, but blew him off and uh, continued trying to like listen to all the things. And I was obviously an undergrad. So still, uh, new to like a lot of the the medical terms that we were that were being discussed, so I was trying really hard to to um, 
to pay really close attention. And so I, I like blew him off. And then my, the physician that I was following around, um, he's like, okay, we're going to go upstairs. We're going to do some paperwork, blah, blah, blah. And I just like walked away and Justin's like, I, it could, uh, this is awkward. So then we came back downstairs and Justin had done all this research on this patient. And so he's like, this is agent orange. Like, this is what we, this is why we're doing all this stuff. Da, 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 da. And so he came back with something that I was very interested in. And I was like, thank you for your research. Still don't care. <laughs> Still don't care. Go away. Um, I know. Thank you for, for doing all that research for me or like explaining this or tried to explain it for as little time as I did give him. And he's like, so are you interested in like toxicology? Are you interested? I'm like, I'm interested in this patient, not you. Go away. (laughs) And he's like, well, I mean, I'm the, like, I know a lot about toxicology here at UCSD. They kind of call me an expert. I was like, no one, no one calls you that. Like I looked at him, nobody calls you that. (laughs) Um, And he's like, well, I'm also like a flight physician. Do you, do you like helicopters? I was like, damn it. Yes. (laughs) Shit. <laughs> all right, all right. So then he's like, "All right, I'm, uh, I'm going up like next week. If you want to follow me around uh, for a, a flight," and I was like, ah, "Got me." All right. So I like showed up. He took me out on like a um, a couple of calls, which were like phenomenal and I had no business being there which was pretty fun and uh then came back and he's like oh I'm mentoring some some other med students do you want to come to some of my lectures I was like yes I do because this is cool and so from there we just we became really good friends like we were friends for many years uh before we we started dating so cut to like a year later we're we're building uh, a levatron using a humholtz conductor in his his we, what we call the turret so he played guitars so he had this turret in his like his apartment was a turret and so we built a levatron using neodymium magnets in a very small apartment using very powerful <laughs> very powerful magnets and a lot of electrical like like things that were very electrically complicated, which was incredibly dangerous now looking back on it. But uh, it was it was super fun. So he and I kind of just bonded over building stuff, like not anything productive, just like really random stuff. Um, and he just had this, this magnetic kind of personality where you just meet somebody and you know they're just they just get it like whatever it like he was brilliant he was thoughtful he was his EQ and IQ were just like off the charts like one of those people that's just like a little bit magic and so we were really good friends and I think that's probably the best way you can define our relationship is we were just really good friends um and he for all of his great qualities he had so many bad ones like he did his best to try and hide and with that came a lot of manipulation. So he was very misunderstood by a lot of people because he would promise these huge things because he wanted to be loved so much. And then he would ultimately disappoint everybody. So I think that's probably why he chose me so so many times over the years is because one, I could see his bullshit. Like I could smell the second I met him. <laughs> but... Um, also, I'm like, you don't need to lie. Like, you can just be yourself. And that was a very uh, uncomfortable yet refreshing thing about our our relationship is like, you don't really need to lie. I, I knew what you were with the second I met you. And so all of his promises and all of his like grandiosities were kind of just lost on me. And I think that's what he appreciated most about our friendship and our relationship is like, you, you could have just told me you were a douchebag and I would have loved you the same. <laughs> So he's just really uncomfortable being himself or feeling comfortable that he would be accepted for being himself. Yeah, exactly. He like, he, he knew that he had, like he called it like some really dark places and he did have some very, very dark places and that he just didn't think anybody would be able to handle. And ultimately that, that did lead to like the demise of our relationship was um, he, he had some really deep seated, 
abandonment issues that turned violent. Like if you left him, he would just not handle that. And it was violent how towards himself or towards others or both? Both. Yeah. So, um, yeah, for like cut to like almost 10 years later, uh, I, he did something where I'm like, he, he would, I don't even know what it was. One of the girls that wanted to date him convinced him that I was trying to cut her out of his life. But every, like, I'm like, I don't care about you. Like you're just another one. And it's not like, you think that you're special and that's fantastic. You're a wonderful human being. And all the women that he did date, I was more of like a, you're going to get hurt. You're a wonderful person. I hope this is a growing experience for you. Um, but somehow, and I don't know what it was about this. Oh, I do. But like she, she found an app online that could fake text messages to people. So she wrote all these text messages that came, that said they came from me and she showed them to Justin. And I was like, why would I say that? Well, and like for a second, I was questioning my own sanity. I was like, did I get real drunk? Like what What kind of monster am I when I'm like blacked out drunk? But then I went through my phone and I didn't have any of these text messages and every single like text I'd ever send this person, she'd be like, Hey, I'm coming over to the house. I was like, great. There's white wine in the fridge. Go ahead. Like I had no problem with her. And like, so in my head, I was like, am I like split personality disorder crazy when I'm like, I don't know. So for like, for a second, I was questioning my own sanity, but this one person, he was just like, no, Lindsay, you're doing all these horrible things to this wonderful person. And she hasn't done anything to you. I was like, this is insane. Like, I can't live like this. Like my brain is like, I can't freaking handle that. Like this world doesn't exist. The what you're trying to make me believe doesn't actually exist. So I came home one day and he wasn't home from work yet. This is, we were living together. And, um, I like started packing all my stuff. I was like, I literally cannot live in a world that's just fabricated. And, um, he like, he saw me packing and I was like, you want to live alone? You want to do this crazy world thing? That's fine. Like, I don't care. I don't like, I will love you no matter what, if you, whatever world you're living in, I can't do this anymore. And, um, he just, he'd like dropped to his knees and just started crying, like just bawling. And I'm like, this is this is like like all of the crazy things that we've been through together over the last 10 years and this is the one that makes you lose it me leaving and that was that was the first time I've ever seen him that vulnerable like I've seen him vulnerable over the years but like not like absolutely devastated vulnerable like something that he trusted and loved more than anything in the entire world just didn't love him back anymore and that was yeah leaving and not loving are not the same thing it was to him it was the same thing like and i tried to explain that so many times where i'm like i love you but i can't i can't be here anymore this is such a toxic crazy place the world like around you doesn't like it the world doesn't function the way you think it does and he just lost it and i like and so the the year and a half more that i stayed after that it was just like me constantly battling with this all all like alternate reality that he had somehow created for himself and it was just the weirdest thing in the entire world because every once in a while you're like you question your own sanity like i'm a re- reasonably confident person and i i trust my logical processes i'm a scientist but like sometimes he comes up with this stuff where you're just like you're taken back by it you're like how does like that even work in your brain like that's like how how did you get there from here like where's the reasonable discussion that's supposed to happen between like hey did this happen and the world's burning to the ground and i'm gonna burn it down it was just it was a a very strange roller coaster so it wasn't just the the text that this other woman had fabricated yeah he he started creating other other yeah so um it was, it was the tech. I think the first time I saw it was the text messages where I was like, this is not real. Like this, the, like the physical evidence does not exist to support your conclusion. Like you cannot claim that I did these things and like, and then continue going with it. Like, I'm like, okay, so 
if I did do this, I never meant to like on, on like an off chance that like I did black out and turn into another person. Sure. Let's, let's run with that. Like I didn't intend on doing any of that. So, but he would not let it go. And so every, every interaction after that, he just questioned all of my motives. Like I was out to get him or make him look bad in some way. Or like I was out to hurt his future prospects. And yeah. So like, even when we started a company together at like after, I think in 2016, 2017 is when we started the, um, the heart lung bypass project. And like, he just questioned all of my motives. Like, why are you doing this? You're trying to take it away from me. I was like, not, I'm trying to help you. <laughs> like, just like, stop getting in your own way. And he, he came across as a very confident person with your first interaction. Mm-hmm. And, and I think as a, he was an MD mm-hmm. and, and it sounds like everybody from what we've talked about in the past, that that was the perception that he's calm, cool, collected, has his shit together, mm-hmm. he knows what he's doing. He's got drive and purpose and passion. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and I don't know if that actually like, so nothing about him actually um, changed in that respect. Um, so he, he always had a, that's like, that's kind of where his like, um, he's kind of like his mom calls it OCD, but like she, she sincerely thought he was OCD because like everything had to be perfect. Everything like this, this facade of who he was had to be like spick and span, incredibly driven person, incredibly smart. Like his brain would not rest ever. And everyone, like he needed everyone to think that he was like the, the picture perfect, everything. Like he was the most masculine man. He was the smartest person in the room. He was the most confident person. Like nothing he ever did could like, he was beyond reproach in his mind. And you just scratch that surface even a little bit and he falls apart. And it was, it was tragic because he really was so smart and he really was so charismatic and he was trying to find the shortcut to get to that place all the time. Like, I don't know why, like he, he just, he was that person that was charismatic and smart and funny and all of these things. Like he had a really high IQ and an EQ and he just, for some reason cared so much about this facade of who he was that he didn't really realize that who he was, was also this facade, just a little crazier. (laughs) So did you, uh, did he, was he ever diagnosed with any? Yeah. Um, no, I don't think so. So that's, that's kind of like one of the most tragic things about, um, about his entire story is that he felt like he could never go get help. Um, not that somebody with that kind of, uh, that kind of psych profile, like that, that narcissistic psych profile would ever want to go get help. But, um, he, he being a physician and being like, um, like police force. Uh, so he was a SWAT physician too. And, um, having to, or being able to go to therapy to see somebody about like all of the trauma, all of the PTSD that he encountered, like all of the things that he saw on a daily basis. Um, he believed that if he went to go get help, they would take everything away from him. They would take his career away from him. They like you, he thought that being a physician and being like a SWAT physician and all these things that you can't have any cracks, like you can't have any kind of mental instabilities of any kind. So trying to keep it together was, and make sure everybody knew that there was just like a perfect physician. We've talked about it a couple of times that, he he sort of thought that attaining his his goal yeah. would make him whole yeah yeah the the dog that caught the car which was like really the like the crux of like his entire personality uh like demise was he had everything so when he was growing up um his his parents were never married he grew up like the just a really unfortunate way cuz he was so wanted by both parent, but they 
con- they didn't they could not get along. They could not do what was in the best interest of the child. So he was just being torn in two separate directions. His dad was saying that his mother was a horrible human being. And so he took her to court over and over and over and over again. And she was um, an EMT and didn't make a lot of money. So she couldn't stand up to him like for a lot of uh, these fights, which was really unfortunate. Um, So he went to go live with his dad when he was eight years old. And it was, according to his mom and according to Justin, the worst thing that had ever happened to him because his dad didn't want Justin. He wanted the perfect version of Justin. So, and a kid who, who has, who had um, his talent his dad just kind of expected he was going to be perfect. And that's just not how that works. <laughs> like he was a great athlete. He was super smart. Um, I think when he was like 10 years old, he, he, his dad had bought him a guitar and he was listening to, I forget what it was, but he had like a cassette tape. So he figured out that cutting the power to the cassette tape would slow down the song so he he jerry rigged this cassette tape to to play slower so he could hear the the notes being played so he could talk so he taught himself guitar because he figured out the physics of a tape recorder <laughs> and it was brilliant and that's how he learned how to play guitar and um he taught himself so he just like a brilliant kid but also dad got pissed that he ruined a cassette tape or a, a tape player so i mean it's everybody values things differently, I guess. But, um, and then Justin had three younger stepbrothers, uh, or half brothers, I guess. Sorry. Um, and just like, he didn't have, he didn't feel the love that they did because like Justin's dad and his stepmom like had these three kids and then Justin was the extra. And then he was constantly being torn between like his, his mom and then his dad. And then, he, I remember him telling me this is like one of the most devastating things that like happened to him. His dad forgot him at some point. And so he would, he sat or his dad was too busy picking up the other boys or something like that. And they, he forgot to pick up Justin like a few times. And so he would, he always packed like a, a bag of Cheerios and he would sit on the doorstep of their house eating Cheerios because they wouldn't give him a key to the house to come home. So he would just sit there eating Cheerios for hours apparently. But so just like that kind of abandonment and that kind of like just fear of you don't fit anywhere. Yeah. You don't really fit anywhere. So he always tried to be like, as an adult, he always tried to be the exact person that everybody wanted to see and also tell everybody exactly what they needed to hear, which was easy for him because he could see somebody and know what they needed. And so he would break these poor people because he's like, I know exactly what you need. I'm going to be exactly what you need. But then he had no intent on following through with any of that. So then like people around him would form these like really deep connections. And then he's like, Oh no, you need somebody else, not me. And so it was like, he was just constantly breaking hearts everywhere, which is really unfortunate because like he'd sincerely wanted to help people, but he couldn't afford the follow through to make that happen. So when, I mean, maybe it started with the, the phantom text messages, but it, yeah. it, it seemed to kind of unravel. Yeah. Um, quickly. It did. Um, so he, I met him when he was in residency. So when he moved up to uh, the Bay area to do his fellowship at Stanford, he was one, he, he felt an enormous amount of pressure on him to, to perform because he was now an attending. He, in his mind, like the buck stops with him. Like he, he was just, he had to like be wanted by Stanford. Like he had to like, he took on like all of this like extra responsibility. So he was doing his fellowship. He also got on to the, the um, SWAT team. So he was being a SWAT physician. Then he was pulled into FEMA and he was doing a whole lot of extra stuff. Um, so he was like barely ever sleeping. And I think that's when um, things really started to unravel. Like he became very, very isolated. Like in San Diego, he was just like the king of San Diego, like just 
everybody thought he was awesome. And like, he always knew that there was somebody else to back him up, like an attending to back him up. And he was brilliant. Like attendings would call him for advice when he was in San Diego, but not at Stanford. Stanford's like, you plebeian go away. Like, like we don't, they didn't treat ER as like a specialty. They treated it like a triage center. And that was hugely demoralizing for Justin. Um, but the more they rejected him, the more they he wanted them. <laughs> so after his fellowship year, um, I think that was the, actually the first time I, I remember him, remember him trying to commit suicide was uh, it was after his boards. So his written boards, um, his little half brother, uh, Maddie came out and then his best friend, Devin um, and uh, this girl that he was seeing at the time, like she tried to throw him this big party and he was like, until Justin gets the results, he's just like a, a, head case. So he thought he had bombed the entire thing. He was an absolute failure in life. And then, so they all went out drinking and Justin called me. He was um, on the Golden Gate Bridge and he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm out. I was like, what? (laughs) I'm sorry, what? (laughs) He's like, yeah, I think I'm going to end it tonight. And I was like, how about, and I was down in San Diego still. So I was like, how about we, we talk about this I'm coming up right now. I'll be there in a few minutes or a few hours. And he's like, no, I think I'm checking out. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm checking out right now. And so the phone just goes down and I'm like, what, <laughs> what is going on? So I drive up from San Diego. I get there at like, I don't know what hour and I'm calling him. I'm calling him. I'm calling him. He finally answers his phone. He's in the hospital. He'd ran out in front of a car, got hit by a car and he's got taken away in an ambulance. And I'm just like, so I take him home from the hospital and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I didn't jump. So I ran in the street. I was like, that's not great. Justin, <laughs> like maybe we, like we need to talk about like why you're doing this. And he's like, I don't like nobody. It was, it was, the same, all the same reasons. Like he wasn't loved enough. He didn't perform enough. He didn't like all the stress from being at Stanford and like not having that kind of recognition that he needed um, was starting to crack. Like he was starting to crack. And um, it's, yeah, that's when I decided to move up to San Francisco. So I started looking for a job at Stanford. So I got a, I was doing research and I um, moved up to Stanford he and I moved in together in my head. I was trying to build him a life that he could grow into that where he didn't need Stanford. Like, so we started doing a lot of extracurricular projects. So like the, the heartland projects where he could run it, he could like, it's never going to be fully recognized, like fully realized. It's always going to be like an evolving process that he has control over. So he can focus on doing that and like do hospital medicine to keep his license and to like stay in touch with like, the like the actual like hospital kind of system um so that was my my half-baked theory of why i moved up to to san francisco is to to try and save him from himself (laughs) in his brain but like he was he was so brilliant he always needed challenges and he didn't know how to challenge himself outside of a very structured system like medicine so if the challenges stops he stops yeah and I think that's that's ultimately what happened. And he, so he became a physician. He or he became an attending. Um, they didn't accept him his first year, so they only gave him like a partial job out of uh, out of fellowship, which was devastating for him. Like he, like how dare you reject me? Like I am like all the things, but he's not Stanford. Like nothing about Justin says like I. I am a Stanford person. He just like, he thought that his way was the right way all the time. Damn the rest of them. And he like, the more he tried to like make people understand that he was a really good physician, the more they're like, no, you have to be nice to patients. You can't be mean to them. Like you're, you're great. Like diagnostically, you're fantastic. And like procedurally amazing. You love teaching. You can't sleep with the nurses you can't sleep with your residents and you can't be a dick to your patients. And he's like, no, but I'm really good at diagnostics. They're like, yes, but don't do that. 
So he he was convinced that because he was so brilliant diagnostically and procedurally, he could do whatever he wanted, which was not the case. Like you can't do whatever you want. You have have to follow the rules or leave or find somewhere that's like you don't have to follow the rules where you get to make your own rules. And that's kind of what I was trying to to help him accomplish is like, if you want to be the guy making the rules, you need to find your own path because Stanford is a very established place and you can't change it. So your idea was to have an, a project that, that never would end. Exactly. And yeah. Therefore he, he would always have something to do, always have something to challenge himself. Seek. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so that's when the pig project started the, the Heartland bypass machine. Um, we started using pig. So uh, it was a, he needed a simulation model that was very realistic. So um, part of the the trouble when he was teaching is like, it's a mannequin. Nobody really, like everyone, like they come in, they're tired. They're like, whatever. All right, mannequin, like what's the card say now? Like, oh, blood pressure drops. They're like, okay, push, whatever. It's, it's a very like passive kind of um, interaction, which is, uh, if that makes sense. But so he wanted something that bled, something that cried, something that like you physically thought that you had to save it. So we used um, recently slaughtered pigs and uh, over over two years, Justin, me and um, a couple like a handful of other people, our friend Gabe did the software for it. We built this this pulsatile pump that could be hooked up to a a freshly frozen cadaver or a freshly dead um, animal, we cannulated the the ascending and descending aorta so we could pump blood or blood. Um, it was like a, a solution that was made to keep the 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 vascular system intact while it was like the the corpse was um, degrading. So we we found like we over the two, two, three years that we worked on this project, it was fantastic. So it looked like it, like you could put it through all the trauma scenarios that you wanted. And it's not like a cadaver where you can't cut it. You can cut it, you can tourniquet it, you can burn it, you can do all these things. And it's not going to cost you $10,000 to replace like that specific part of the cadaver. So, um, or the, the mannequin. It's interesting that he chose to, include some part of teaching empathy Mm -hmm. into the model yeah when when that's what he's accused of lacking like it's such it's such a strange conundrum because if you saw justin's bad side then you're like you are an unempathetic sociopath but in everything he did he was so compassionate in it was like it was yes so his model was to be able to teach in like a really high cutie setting, but with like with fresh frozen cadavers or, or um, uh, freshly dead pigs because he, he genuinely didn't want to hurt anybody. He didn't want to hurt anything. And yeah. So, but it was the whole project was a whole lot of fun. We got, um, we did a bunch of jobs with uh, the international school for tactical medicine. We did a, um, a few jobs uh, with Stanford. So we would go and teach a Stanford like ER and trauma and surgery residents because it's actual tissue that you can work on. Um, and yeah, so that, that project was a whole lot of fun, but that's something that I, we all, uh, we tried to get him really involved in like, so not just like the, that particular project, but like looking forward, he could change the way we teach medicine or like he could go off and like do physics if he wanted to. But like basically the goal was to get him away from a very structured hospital system where, and so he could invent and be creative and kind of be in charge of his own path going forward. Because once he got to Stanford and became an attending, he was a dog that caught the car and rubber doesn't taste as good in actuality as it does in your brain. (laughs) So it sounds like your partners in the project it seems like they were of the same mindset. Was that, was that something you guys talked about that this was part of, part of the mission of the project was not just to do good, but to also help Justin personally. Yeah. So there was, um, one of his best friends from med school, uh, her and I would have like regular, like 
powwows about how we're going to keep Justin like moving forward because left to his own devices, he'd spiral out of control, which is eventually what happened. So we were constantly coming up with ways to, to, to get him in the right direction. So it was, so me and um, this other person, we, we kept coming up with interesting things for him to do or like projects for him to kind of like think through and put him on a trajectory. But ultimately it got to be, it got to the point where he needed so much control over this one project. He removed everybody else from it. And it's really hard to like help somebody moving in the right direction once that you've been cut out of it. So it became the point where we were no longer helping. He now viewed us as the enemy. And you said the, the bridge car incident was the first attempt. That was the first one that I was around for. I know he like growing up and, um, through undergrad, he he had tried a few times before, and he said he was always like constantly in the back of his mind. He's like, if I just check out, nobody's like the world will continue spinning. Which, true, the world keeps spinning, but it's, it's a little less special without him. So, um, that was the first one that I was, um, I was ma- I was around for. But after that, he had this place when we moved up to to the Bay area. He had this place where he would go. He wouldn't tell me where it was. Um, he wouldn't tell anybody where it was, but there was a place on the coast, um, on the beach where he would go and take his gun. Like he would just take his gun and he would leave. And he's like, I might not come back. I was like, that's not okay. And he would call me when he was leaving and he didn't have cell phone service there. Like every, like probably two or three times I would get that phone call where he's like, I'm out. Everything's yours. And I was like, let's, let's try and talk about this. So that was one of the things where I was just like, he didn't give me an opportunity to stop him. He's, he's crying out for help, but then cutting you off once he does it. Yeah. That's, that's it. Those are the ones where I like, I, I felt very helpless um, there's a handful of times where he tried to shoot himself in front of me. And I was just like, that's not, you you like, that's such a dick move. Like you can't kill yourself in front of me. And also like, I just wouldn't let him. So like, so this is, I remember a couple of times we we're in our bedroom and he would just like pull out his, pull out his gun and put it in his mouth. And I would wrap, I would jump on his back and wrap myself around him from behind. I was like, what are the odds that that bullet's only going to hit you? What are the odds? Like, so his head would like the back of his head would just be on my chest. And I was like, this is like, if you go, I go too. like, you want to try and shoot me really. And that's when he would just like, he's like, okay, I can't hurt you. So this will be done for now. But it was, it was like a few times that happened where I would just like, I'm like, if you try and kill yourself, you're kill- you're taking me with you. Like, what are the odds that that bullet's just going to go through your head and not hit me? He desperately wanted to be helped. Yeah, he desperately wanted to be helped. Um, and he just could not figure out the resources. And he, it's really... And I had this conversation with his um, friend from med school a few times where I'm just like, he actually just needs something. Like one, he's not going to go to therapy. Like he's, we tried to talk about it a handful of times. He's like, I'm smarter than any, anybody who goes into psych. <laughs> anybody who goes into psych is not a real doctor <laughs> like Dr. Lemieux. Um, I was like, all right, Dr. Lemieux, but <laughs> you're going crazy. So maybe give it a shot. But his logic, he just, he was too good to be bothered with that. So, um, he, he decided that that therapy was not a, an option for him because he was going to be able to outwit and outsmart anybody he could talk to. And also if anybody at work found out that he was seeing a therapist, that would be the end of his career. He was convinced that Stanford would fire him. He was convinced that the the um, SWAT team would not let him like go out on calls with them. He was convinced that he like everything would be taken away from him if he tried to to find help. So that's a that's a very conventional approach 
to looking at psychiatric help. So I think, and, and part of the reason we're here is to talk about the psychedelics aspect of mm -hmm. it. And do you, understanding all of the taboo surrounding mental health, mm -hmm. um, and, and especially his, I, I don't want to call it paranoia, I'm not qualified to do that, but for lack of a better term, his paranoia about yeah. seeking help. Um, do you think he would have been open to something like psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy? I think at some point in his life he would have, um, but I think that paranoia of being caught, um, especially as a physician, you can't take psych <laughs> like not not FDA like I he wouldn't even take antidepressants because if he like if anybody found out that he was taking antidepressants like he it, it's just not okay and um so physicians can prescribe antidepressants but they can't take them it's such a it's such a conundrum isn't it <laughs> so I I think at some point he if that was an option early enough in his life it I, he would have like he was a huge drug addict through high school, like middle school, high school. They called him Turtle Man because he was very tall and hunched over, and he had a backpack that he sold drugs out of. So he like he would he's not a po he was not opposed in his younger years to taking drugs or experimenting with drugs or even like he went to therapy when I was a really little kid when he was twelve years old. He he was in therapy. Um, so. I think at some point in his life, the combination of those two to try and make him better because his brain has always been, had always been on the cusp of brilliant crazy. Um, so at some point that definitely would have been an option. I think it would have been an option for him. Um, but in his later years, uh, I don't think he would have even like attempted the idea just for fear of being caught. So even even if and when this becomes an FDA approved therapy, his 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 perception of any kind of psychotherapy being a weakness, a sign of weakness, mm -hmm. would have stood in his way. That yeah, I I really I I truly think that that he wouldn't have even if it was FDA approved, like SSRIs are FDA approved. He refused to take those, like. It's more of the, I think the stigma and the perception that a physician needs to be completely stable. Like the, your, your SWAT guy needs to be completely stable, which like, I don't like, would you be okay with an ER doctor walking into your, your bay and saying like, Hey, I know this great thing. It helped me out. <laughs> On the other hand, it, it's an admission that an admission of, of, wanting or needing help is an admission of being human. Yeah. And he didn't, it sounds uh, from the stories we've, I've heard from you over time. Yeah. He didn't want to be human. He did not want to be human. He wanted to be superhuman. Like he was the unbreakable man, which is why when he actually ultimately died, everyone, like so many people in his life, they're like, what, what that guy, he had everything. Like he was so happy all the time. But, um, yeah, like any kind of admission of of fault or not being healthy in some way or like not being specifically mentally healthy uh, was unacceptable. And that, that I think it was truly a, a function of working at a place like Stanford with such high expectations with very little kind of understanding of the consequences of those. So in his in his wake of of brilliance and self-destruction he he's left a whole host of people who are now in some part some part of them that was connected to him is yeah. now broken themselves yeah yeah um it's it's kind of it's very tragic to see all of the devastation that he's caused because he truly did form real connections with everybody. So I know I've had this conversation so many times with so many different people that like, like, didn't you get sick of like all of the people in his life thinking that they were the one for him? Like they were like the, the epitome of all things. And I was like, no, like I, like he genuinely cared about all of them. Like he genuinely wanted to help all of them. He, I, none of them understood the, the global picture of him. They all 
understood him to what he was to them. Like they understood the piece of him that they wanted, that they needed. And that's not a bad thing. That's You can't fault anybody for wanting to be loved or wanting to be understood the way that Justin had the capability of understanding people. So I don't ever fault any of the people in his life for being mad that he didn't, he couldn't be the person that they wanted him to be or like that he had so many like really deep and like, really powerful connections with so many people because he was so capable of loving so many people and care and truly caring about all of them. Um, but it was, so at, I think we had three um, different fun wakes funerals for him um, and just watching the devastation and watching like the surprise and shock. Everybody was like, just floored. There was a handful of people that like, yeah. No, we don't. Yeah. We saw that coming. Definitely saw that coming. And then, um, some people hearing, a, I think one of the things that I, I found very, uh, striking was the, the people who had no idea who he really was. And that was, that was like the, the violent, the, the paranoid, the, like the, the broken human being that he really was. But he, what, it, I don't even want to call it broken. He was just human. And like for them to hear that he was human and not perfect was, they were floored by that. And I was just like, I, I don't even know what to say. I was just like, how did you yeah, <laughs> not see that coming? Like, how did you, like, how did you, what in your head thought he was perfect? Like no one's perfect. No one's perfect. To think that anybody is perfect is crazy. So um, I remember one one of our really good friends worked on the the bypass project with us. Uh, he heard some of the stories afterwards, um, not necessarily from me, but like from one of the other um, uh, women in his life. And he's like, "I'm sorry, he did what? Like he did why? And he this was like a thing." And then he came and asked me about it. I was like, "Yes, Pete." <laughs> He like, so, um, our really good friend, Pete, amazing physician, great guy, ex-military. Um, Justin used to tell me that he and Pete were going to kill me. And I was like, Pete's never going to kill me. Like he's like, I know crazy that you are crazy. You're never going to hurt me. But like as some, sometimes Justin would just like go on these things that like his paranoia and like, if I can't have you, no one will have you and you can't leave me. I will kill you before you leave me. And it was like, I, and uh, like, I never believed any of it. Like he would from all the, the handful of times he tried to commit suicide and he would not hurt himself for fear of hurting me. And I was like, I know you would never do that. But I told Pete that one time and he's like, he did what <laughs> he used mine. What? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, he was kind of crazy. Son of a bitch. But it, and that was just at the end. Like that wasn't a thing that, that was systemic throughout his entire life. It was the paranoia and the, the lack of help it escalated to a point where it was, it was dire. You've, I mean, you've been kind enough to, to listen to the series. Mm. It's a, it's not, it's a, you are kind enough to do it. I love your series. <laughs> But do you think from, especially on the science perspective and, and some of the background and understanding more of the science than I do, do you, do you think he would have benefited from a psychedelic therapy or, I mean, it, it's, we don't know who it fits yeah. specifically. Yeah. It's hard to say. I don't, I don't know. Like, um, so we've been reading one, thank you for dropping books throughout your, your series, I've bought almost every single book that you've named. And a lot of them are really phenomenal right now. I'm working on empire of dreams. Great book. Um, emperor, of, empire of dreams, emperor of dreams, emperor, emperor of dreams. Um, but, uh, who it's going to help, uh, who it's not going to help. I think, um, I forget what episode it is, but there was, they were talking about like the environment where you, like you have to go in, wanting this you have to go into the environment knowing and like 
fully surrendering to the process. I don't know if Justin would be capable of that. So I don't know how, um, how, how helped he could be by it. If he, he's incapable of losing that kind of control. And that, that's something with the, the PTSD episode mm-hmm. that we had, those two, Keith and, and they were, they're veterans, um, active duty. They were in combat missions in yep. military where you're taught your life depends on you never surrendering, never, never letting your guard down. Yeah. And that's exactly what needs to happen for the help to take place. So the ayahuasca in particular does seem to have the ability to remove that barrier, but you have to first get into the situation right. of saying, yes, I'll, I'll try it. Right. That so, y- instead of saying, Lindsay, I'm checking out as your cry for help. And instead of doing that, maybe. Right. I, and honestly, like that, that particular episode really like that got me. I remember I was taking rally for a hike and I had finished my hike and then I got in my car and I was just, bawling in my car when I was hearing these guys talk about it because I want to believe that that could have helped him. I want to believe that. I have no idea. I've never, I've never been to war. I've never been through a lot of the things that Justin had gone through. Um, like the paradise fires. I remember he was working with FEMA. He got called out, um, for the paradise fires and he came back, not just, he was never going to be the same after that, that many, burn bodies just f- destroyed like i yeah that's that's one of the points where he like really snapped just like seeing all of those burn bodies and like describing them over and over and over and what like running that through his head over and over and over but hearing um those vets talk about their experience and i'm like maybe it is possible i don't know it's too late now but for justin i guess um but i would like to think that if they could do it, maybe he could. Who knows? Next one. Next time I see a brilliant, um, attractive, athletic physician with some really fucked up shit, I'll let them know. I'll call that guy. <laughs> like, hey, I know a guy. I know somebody who knows a guy. We will see. But um, I'm very excited about the the promise of it it seems like like something that could help somebody like Justin like Justin's roommate Devin his best friend for 30 years uh he's the one that found Justin and um that he I so when when I was listening to your series uh I think that that would sincerely help somebody like Devin one like he he's a mess like he's now Devin is an incredibly charismatic person, like just the nicest human being on the planet. Other than that, use pretty much useless. Like he, I love him to death as a brother, but after Justin died, he lost his job. He lost his house. He's like, he cannot help himself. And like, he has no drive, no, no want to even try and fix anything. He'll do all the drugs in the world. He's like, I hope this helps hope this helps but he's looking for that silver bullet like he won't go to therapy because he's now agoraphobic and um i'm like you need something that's gonna like at least kickstart you into something that's relatively healthy and it's it's ironic in some ways that the act of finding justin created the likelihood of PTSD in other people. Yeah. 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 I can't even like that, that night, um, Justin and Devin were planning on going to the gym. They were going to do like back and buys or something like that. And, um, like the, our dog Dax, uh, had like made a mess in the house. So Justin like came home from work. Um, one of the, the the girl that he was with at the time, she she decided to call it that day and she's like, I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore. And so she just left a note on the door and left. Like not like not answering her phone, like not just like that that abandoning him, he couldn't handle. So like they he came in, 
um, they were set, sitting on the couch. Justin started cleaning the house and then somebody called and he went upstairs and then Devin was waiting for, for him to come back so they could go to the gym. Didn't come back down for a few hours. So he's like, okay. So he went upstairs and started like watching TV with his like VR headset and he passed out. And then next thing he knew, somebody was breaking down the door. Like, have you seen Justin? And he's like, no. And then Justin's door is locked. He never locks his door, ever locks his door, which is weird. Sometimes it was weird. Um, so then they finally broke down the door and his best friend who he talked to every single day for 30 years just finds him dead. Brains splattered on the walls. So after that, Devin was, he'll never be the same. Like he, he had no idea. He knew that Justin was a crazy person. Like he knew that he had issues, but he, he didn't know that it was that night. He said he had no no idea that it was going to be that night. And and knowing somebody has issues or has a potential, it, it never prepares you for mm-hmm. it happened. Yeah. Because like he tried so many times before. Never did it. But um, yeah. So Devin event, like he, yeah, lost his job, lost his house, lost his best friend. And now he won't talk to anybody. Me, he talks to. Um, well, let's go down and see if Jenny Mitchell. Should there are studies that are ongoing and yeah, active. So I I started looking into the, like those studies and seeing if I could get him to actually even physically come out of. I think he's living in a Motel Six now. Like if he could even physically come out of his hotel to go to a therapy session or to even be di- like to be evaluated for a therapy session, something like that. So. Well, yeah, we know some people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it would be, yeah, that would be, I, I, I have no other. Let's, let's actually, we'll turn off taping in a minute and then we'll actually do that because the lot, my sister and I had the same conversation that there are ongoing studies. Let's look and see if he's a candidate. Yeah. And we did start with, we figured that the time horizon, mm-hmm. Like you, you never realize that that time horizon is possibly much shorter yeah. than you imagine. And I let's not do that again. No. Yeah. And Devin's not going to, he's not going to kill himself the way Justin did, but he drinks like three bottles of wine a night now and he's going to kill himself eventually. Just might not be with a nine millimeter hollow point. Could be with a cork. Sorry. He uses screw tops. <laughs> That was dark. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you when this happened. And mm-hmm. I kind of, you and I crossed paths later. Mm-hmm. I do know, I, I, I knew Erica while, when this was happening yeah. for you. And I know she was concerned about you. Yeah. Yeah. Deeply concerned about you. Yeah. And that was like, so it was like after I left. Um, so it, it got to the point where, I, I literally physically could not stay in the house anymore. And I, I thought that me leaving was going to be the best thing for him because I just had become the enemy in a lot of ways for him. And like, I was stopping him from realizing his dream. I was stopping him from all these things. And I was just like, I came here to give you the life that you wanted to build you a future to, to build you the possibility of a future. Like I'm here to just pave that road and then you can run it all day. Like I, I wasn't here permanently. I was, I, I always told him I was going to be in his life forever, but I can't protect him when I'm that close. So I was never going to be that, that person was going to live with him forever. Um, but so I felt like I had put together enough of his life where I felt comfortable leaving. Like he had met somebody that he cared so much about and he really, really like also sh- like cared so much about like he cares about everybody. But this one, like he she was going through chemo and he just loved to be like that knight in shining armor. And he, she was sweet and she was outdoorsy and she liked to take him on adventures. And I was like, great. Like she seems healthy 
mentally. Um, and she's got like this cancer thing that you can like stick through with her and like be that knight in shining armor for her. And it, it wasn't like a, a horrible cancer. It was like a curable cancer. So he'd like go to the end and he's like victory over cancer. Um, so I, I thought that that was going to, to last him for a while at least. And then like the, with the, um, the, the bypass project, like we were in a really good place. Like we had found like funding and we had been doing like one job a week and we had like a, like a decent amount of money in the bank. Like, so, and it was pretty like efficient at that point, like all the prep work and actual, like the whole, like doing the whole scenarios was like very efficient. We were getting lots of more customers. So I was like, okay, I think I can step back now. I was a mess. Like I could not like that's when I met Erica. And so um I I finally had the time to to just take everything apart and put it back together and it was hard. Like just like unraveling that whole part of my life and putting it back together like the constant like am I crazy? Am I not crazy? Like I'm just like I I had to take that that piece of me, the 10 years that I had been with Justin, I had to try and make sense of it in my head. And that was hugely difficult. And, um, and then I, I got the call that Justin had killed himself and everything was just like, it wasn't chaos. It was calm. It, and I think that's what, um, what Erica was so concerned about is I was like now triaging everything, everything in Justin's life. Like, so um, nobody knew what to do. Everybody was kind of like running around looking at each other. They're like, well, Lindsay, like, you know, all the things about him. And I was like, okay. And nobody could take charge nobody wanted to do anything. Everything was like going crazy. So I'm like, fine, I'm just going to like, just, pick this whole thing up and like carry it. Like I just too much stuff is going on. So I'm just going to go full type a and like take care of everything. So I got Devin like settled. I got the house all cleaned up the dog, the, his family, the lawyers, the, the funeral, the, like the cremation, all that stuff just needed to happen. So I think Erica was very concerned about me because she'd never seen me just like, I, I don't have time for literally any personal anything. I don't have the bandwidth for any personal anything. Like I just need to, to do this. And she'd never seen me like that before where she, like, I like just so focused on what getting one thing done. Um, and that was really like, that was really hard for Erica because her and I were living together at the time and she was going through a really hard time um, personally. And I just did not have even like the slightest bandwidth to, to help her in any way, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, I'm like, I, I need to help myself by doing this. Like, this is like, I can't let somebody that I cared about for 10 years, their life just be like, just float away with anybody who wants to take a piece of him. Like this needs to have structure. This needs to have something like nobody's going to clean up the house. That's half of my life right there. Like, I, I was still on all the bills for that house. So like I like legally I had to, and also like functionally nobody else was going to do it. So Erica was very concerned about me, but honestly, like that, that's the only thing I knew how to do. And that's the only way I could fathom doing it was just like cutting everything off and just, just barreling through your version of therapy. Yeah. Like I, like it, I would have gone, it would have been much, much worse for me if I didn't, if I couldn't help it anyway, like I felt hugely responsible for Justin's life and to, to know that he died a few months after I had left when, and when I left, he's like, I will die if you leave. And I was like, I know, but you're not, you're going to be okay. He's like, no, I will, I will actually die. If you leave, I will physically die. And I was like, you're not going to die. This is just like another one of those, like whatever. But, um, I remember the last day that I saw him, uh, he's like, I will die. And I was like, I know. I thought about that. 
I took that more metaphorically at the time, but <laughs> I thought he was on a good trajectory and, or like he seemed happy ish, um, happy enough. Um, so I thought that was going to improve, but that did not improve. So, um, but Erica, yeah, I, I feel, I feel bad that the people in my life were affected by that. Like the people in my life post Justin, I guess were affected by, um, by his death. But I think that the people in my life pre Justin or like with Justin would have been much worse off if I didn't, if I didn't help in some way, like I still hang out with his mother all the time. I talk to his dad all the time. His, his, his friends, his family, like Devin, I don't know what would have happened to Devin if, if I wasn't there to, to find him a house to like get, take him to a therapist or to a therapist to get some kind of any kind of help. Not that it's doing terribly well at the moment, but, um, and then, yeah, just like all of his legal stuff. Like it's when, so, after somebody dies, like there's a lot of paperwork and then trying to get him cremated was a pain. Um, but it was just, yeah, like I, I couldn't have handled it any differently, I think. Um, but yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This was, thank you for doing your, your series though. It's, incredibly informative, hugely helpful. Um, I, I'm very excited about the, the prospect of this, this new form of therapy. I'm hoping that it turns out to be what I'm hearing, what I'm, the, the data is suggesting. Um, I, I hope that we continue to gain ground in, in this like field. So I'm really excited and thank you for doing your podcast. Oh, Jojo. <laughs>